Biz News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. It's the 24th of June. I'm Jackie Cameron, your host for the Biz News Power Hour today. I'm standing in for your regular host, Alec Hogg. As usual, we've got a terrific show lined up for you this evening, packed with useful insights on investing and business. Star stock picker Pete Fulion joins us as our regular Thursday co-host. You'll also be hearing from Pete Major, one of South Africa's top mining analysts, and property industry expert Dr. Andrew Golding of the Pam Golding Properties Group. Later in the show, you'll hear Alec Hogg's special interview with Discovery Health CEO Ryan Noach. First, we bring you up to date with the financial and business news headlines. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity, and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Justin Rowe Roberts covers the financial markets throughout the day for BizNews. Justin, what have been the main developments on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange today? A good day for the JSC, Jackie, with the All Share Index up at 66,100. The rand was stronger against all the major currencies to 14 rand 18 cents to the dollar, 19 rand 75 cents to the pound, and 16 rand 95 cents to the euro. Gold is slightly up at $1,782 an ounce. A Kruger rand is trading at approximately 25,500 rand. Brent crude is down at $75 a barrel, and Bitcoin is steady trading at around 480,000 rand a Bitcoin. You don't often hear that. If I look into the price action for the day, the major moves, old mutual up 7%. But of the strange one here, they came out with an operational update yesterday. The market had no opinion, flat on the day, 7% up today. We saw that two weeks ago with the Foschini Group. They released results, 5% down in the morning session, ended the day up 5% up. That's a 10% intraday swing for a 50 billion rand company. And we're seeing it again with old mutual. So the market just taking some time to digest these results that are coming through. If I look at other companies in the green today, um, the mining stocks, South 32, Northern Platinum, both in the green. Uh, nice to see our, our, our miners coming back and implats. Transaction capital uh, for the financial services uh, sector, that's up 2%. If I look what's in the red, it looks like all the gold counters, Harmony, processes down. MediClinic. So an interesting day on the market all in all, Jackie. Justin, the the gold mining issue is very interesting because the gold mining companies have been taking a, a little bit of a hit today, but gold is up. Can you explain why there is this difference? You'd expect the gold mining companies to benefit from an improvement in the gold's price. So, so Jackie, uh, with regard to that question, the, the only issue is, is that sometimes overnight, um, since that the stock exchange is only open from nine to five uh, and the gold spot price trades uh, throughout the day, 24-7, those can, th- that accounts for those differences. So the, while the gold price might be slightly up, but the gold miners have detracted, means that obviously between five and, and the following morning when the market opens, um, there's been a bit of a negative price change there. Um, but it... it, it it is strange what we're seeing with the gold miners. We've seen in the U.S. those inflation numbers came out. 
gold is an inflation hedge. So you would think with these red hot numbers coming through in the US and also locally in South Africa, people want to protect their purchasing power because that's what inflation does. It erodes future value of money. Um, so gold, the gold miners have come off dramatically in the last year. They're, they're trading at 52-week lows, uh, more than 60% down um, from around this time last year. Big movements. Is it your sense that now is a good time to buy, or do you think these prices could go lower? I think they definitely could go lower. Not, uh, commodities are notoriously hard to predict. Um, so I don't have a crystal ball in front of me. I, I, I'm not going to say that they can't go lower, which they definitely can. But just given uh, golds, um, g- given what it represents as an inflation hedge, as as a safety net, I think it might be a good time to start loading up on some gold shares. We know that they are leveraged against the gold price, so any small increase in the gold price will lead to uh, a, a multiple of that in the gold stocks. But it's also also the same for the way down. Um, so depending on how risk averse you are, either you can get exposure by something like a a Kruger Rand, as we were saying, trading at around twenty-five and a half thousand rand per coin, or if you if you a little bit more risky, you get exposure via the gold miners, such as a DRD Gold or Harmony. This market report was made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. Next, the business flash briefing. Former South African President Thabo Mbeki has joined the debate on land expropriation without compensation, slamming plans by President Cyril Ramaphosa to push forward the controversial legislation. In a 15-page document handed to the ANC, Mbeki has set out why he thinks the constitutional amendment the party is drawing up over land expropriation is a disaster. Plans to expropriate land without compensation will drive away investment and reinforce tribalism, he says. In addition, the policy proposal is a shift away from the Freedom Charter. The deadline to table a report to the National Assembly by the end of August is looming. The Democratic Alliance says the South African government should be held responsible for the unfolding tragedy of thousands dying from COVID-19. In a hard-hitting statement, which comes as Gauteng fights a massive spike in COVID cases, DA leader John Steenhuizen notes that a full 15 months into the pandemic Less than 1% of South Africans have been fully vaccinated. That's fewer than 500,000 people out of a population of 60 million, he notes. He says, we are lagging far behind not just our upper-middle-income peer countries, but also lower-middle-income and many poor countries like in Zimbabwe and Namibia. He says that every South African should be outraged at government's approach to vaccines, which has been secretive, slow, disorganized and deadly. Former Labour MP Lord Peter Hayne has slammed the lack of prosecution of London-based companies for aiding the Gupta family. The South African-born MP has written to Rishi Sunak, UK Chancellor of the Exchequer, after a blistering attack on Thursday during a House of Lords debate. He has urged the prosecution of UK-based firms like HSBC, Standard Chartered and Baroda, all global banks based in London, which have still not been prosecuted for facilitating gigantic money laundering by the Zuma family and Gupta brothers. South Africa's environmental authorities have rejected an application by Car Powership to generate electricity at three of the nation's ports. This deals a setback to the government plans to reduce outages that are stifling economic growth. The Department of Forestry, Fisheries and the Environment blocked the request after due consideration of all relevant information, it said. The Turkish company applied for projects at the Richards Bay, Nkura and Saldana harbours. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News.
For more on those and the other big stories of the day, go to biznewsradio.com. With me is the Biznews Power Hour co-host, Pete Verlion, who is one of South Africa's top value fund managers. He's with CounterPoint. Pete, what's caught your eye today on the markets? Well, I, I think the, the most important piece of news is probably um, Old Mutual unbundling a further portion of their stake in uh, Nedbank. I think they still own around 19%. They're going to unbundle, unbundle about two-thirds of that to their shareholders, which I think is quite interesting. The share bounced up by more than 8%. Does this mean investors weren't expecting this development? Why such a big move? Yeah, look, it's uh, – well, let's take a step back. I think Mutual is one of those shares in the JSE which, as a business, has underperformed dramatically since it listed you know, more than 20 years ago. Um, remember, it went off to London, acquired all sorts of business internationally, as a lot of South African businesses do, wrote off a lot of money, lost a lot of money. Uh, wasted a lot of money, uh, and they came back to Africa with their tail between their legs, and the market is now discounting them. Uh, and uh, in my opinion, it is probably one of the cheaper shares in the market right now. So in any sort of news that indicates that they are busy um, extracting value and doing the right things in terms of capital allocation, I think you'll see the sort of uplift. And it's happened on mutual, and it happens in many other shares where – management takes a bit between their teeth and actually does the right thing in terms of capital allocation. Uh, and it's as a result of the undervalued situation we find ourselves in with many, many companies. We've also seen an undervalued situation with Naspers, and it just can't unlock the value. What makes you think that Old Mutual will be able to unlock value for shareholders? Well, a Mutual is doing the right thing. It's unbundling a non-core asset to its shareholders. So where you um, where it owned NetBank on its own balance sheet is just passing it on to the shareholders. Shareholders in this exactly the same position, except they now have more flexibility, more optionality. They can either sell the net bank shares, which they receive from Old Mutual, or keep them. Um, and Old Mutual itself is a focused life insurance business. Uh, what NASPAS and Process are doing is just getting more and more complicated and intertwined. And um, I'm not sure that what they're trying to do is unlock value. I think they are trying to uh, to retain a value destructive strategy, which um, is actually in favor of management and not shareholders. Is NASPERS in your portfolio? It's not, no. Um, the counterpoint value fund holds no NASPERS. Your your fund your fund managers must your fund members must be quite relieved about that. Pete, last they, time they're quite relieved. Yes. Last time we spoke, you said Sunlum was on your radar. How do you compare Sunlum with Old Mutual, given they're quite similar companies? Yeah, I, I think once again um, to take a step back, if you go back, they both listed I think within a year of each other in the late nineties, early two thousands, and they took completely different paths. Sunlum stayed in South Africa, built a Quality diversified financial services business um, invested in in value creating activities in South Africa, whereas our mutual, as I said earlier, went offshore, listed in London, did all the fancy stuff, bought all these other fancy businesses, and wrote it all off again. Um, Sunlam is by far outperformed our mutual. In fact, I think our mutual share price currently is lower. Speaking under correction here, yeah, but it's lower or not far off the price at which it listed twenty three years ago, whereas Sunlum's share price is probably seven times higher than where it listed at, at the same time or within a year of Old Mutual, which shows you the massive value that's been created by Sunlum 
and it's good capital allocation and good management team. So it's definitely a share that investors should be um, aware of and should uh, be looking at. Um, whether the price-to-value ratio for Sunlum makes sense right now, as I said last week when we spoke, it's something I'm looking at. Um, I, you know, it's not clear to me right now, but it's definitely a far superior business to Old Mutual. Let's take a look at some of the companies that are benefiting from the high coal prices. We were speaking earlier about Tongela and Exaro. What is your analysis of these two companies, and should we be investing in them or staying away from them? And how how do you play? How do you factor coal prices into your long-term investment planning? Yeah, so there's there's two things here. Um, the first thing is should we invest in them at all? Uh, and my answer to that is yes, we should. It is far better for coal assets to be under the ownership and stewardship of a responsible and listed public company, which has to report to its shareholders and to its directors and to the investment public at large as to what it's doing with its assets, than it is for the market to force these guys to sell them to unlisted private businesses who don't operate in the public sphere and have no responsibility towards the public sphere, I think you'll get far worse outcomes if that happens. Uh, So that's point number one. I think these companies should be supported by investors and investors then should support management in transitioning the business to a cleaner operating model over time. And I think that's a healthy and a good thing. Um, So, yes, I think one should invest in these businesses per se. Secondly, should one invest in them now, right now? Well, right now they look extremely cheap because there is such a focus on ESG um, by all sorts of headline investors. Um, and, and these headline investors saying they don't want to touch anything that's dirty. There's a, a lot of negative sentiment around companies like coal mining businesses and other uh, dirty energy businesses, if you can put it that way to the extent where the current share price by far undervalues its assets, even on a view which says that within 10 years um, we will have migrated off coal as a source of energy, which I find unlikely. But even if you take that view, um, even relative to that view, the current share price of these businesses by far undervalue um, that situation. So I think they – they make a good investment opportunity right now as well in terms of the price-to-value relationship. So Tungela could be one of these stocks that is on the radar of a value fund manager because you think that it might uh, improve in value on the stock market. and it's, it's- I think if you call yourself a value investor and you're not looking at Tungela, there's a, there's a problem. Have you got it in your portfolio yet? I do, yes. Uh, both XRO and, and Tungela. As you've got both of them. Pete, speaking about dirty stocks, Sassel is always uh, popular among retail investors, yes. and it's quite yes. dirty. And you know, do you have that in your portfolio? It's the most amazing thing, yes. Um, Sassel is a fairly new addition. I've, uh, I bought Sassel within the last 12 months. I hadn't owned it for a very long time before that. Again, another saving business with massive problems along the capital allocation front over time. They... They they have this fantastic core business, the Sassel Sun Fuel business, the, the basically the fuel from coal business, the dirty business. But it's a great cash generator, and they've been taking this cash and investing in all sorts of projects in all sorts of jurisdictions all over the world, and consistently have been losing money um, through investing in these projects. 
Um, so shareholders have, have really suffered uh, over the past 20 years from what management at Sassel have been doing. Uh, but I think with like Charles um, coming to a head last year, maybe that is changing. And maybe management and the jury is still out on this, but I think maybe management will start realizing that they need to generate higher returns on equity. Um, and so there might be a change coming. And in the meantime, in the background, I, I think the oil price is set for a long-term extended upcycle, um, given the lack of global investment in um, an oil extraction capacity. Um, so I think there's a tailwind coming for Sassel. And I also think that management might might be start doing the right thing. So, yes, I, I think it um, at, at these sort of price levels, it could make a good investment. It's quite possible. So you've been buying at a good price because it looks like the share price is at its worst ever level for about 10 years, but ticking up now. Yeah, well, it was even worse last year. <laughs> I think it got down all the way to well, 30 or 40 rand at one point. Ridiculous. I mean, it was, um, and this is, a, this is a company that not that long ago was trading about 600 rand a share. But that's just the market after a while just realized that management was just consistently destroying value over time. So you think there's still a lot of opportunity if, if investors buy now that they could still gain from Sassel rising in value and turning around? It's possible. If, if the oil price turns out to be in a long-term structural upswing, then I think shareholders in Sassel will do well regardless of what management does. And if management starts doing um, some good things in terms of how they position the business, then there could be significant upside. But that's, you know, the jury's still out on that. Pete, this company Karoo, which recently listed on the NASDAQ, a South African company which started uh, by uh, developing a product in the, the in, to track stolen cars and moved mm-hmm. onto the NASDAQ to try and stimulate some interest from investors in its shares. I see it's in the major movers downward today. How closely do you watch Karoo and do you think there's an opportunity there? Yeah, look, I, so I, I think Karoo at the moment is probably on the expensive side of things. Um, I don't know. I'm not intimately familiar with the business. I haven't analyzed it to any great detail. But for me, what stands out here is, is a business that started in South Africa, started by South Africans, uh, built up in South Africa, was always valued at quite low levels when it was a South African-listed company. Um, if you recall, it was trading between, say, 10 and 20 rand for quite a long time. And then it listed on the NASDAQ and now it's trading at 50 rand a share. So it went up by a multiple of five times just through changing its domicile. Same business, just a different domicile, different set of investors looking at it, different set of eyes looking at it. I think South Africans tend to be too negative on our local businesses, and as a result, our local businesses are undervalued. Um, and if it takes a simple change in domicile to extract the value, that just highlights that situation. So I think there are many still good opportunities for investors in South Africa uh, to invest in really good businesses run by good business people. Um, and they just unrecognized because they are listed and domiciled in South Africa. So I, I think the whole crew thing just highlights that sort of opportunity that I think still exists here. So are you generally optimistic about the future performance of the Johannesburg stock market on average? Um, look, when you say the Johannesburg stock market, about a quarter of that is NASPAS process, and I'm not that optimistic about the future performance of NASPAS process. 
but there is a large subset of the Johannesburg stock, the stock exchange, which I'm quite optimistic on. Smaller cap, mid, mid-sized companies run by entrepreneurial management, which are undervalued because the large fund managers with, you know, on just not investing in these companies. Uh, and most investors just want to invest offshore. So there's a lot of unrecognized value in that part of the market, though. And, and broadly speaking, I, I remain optimistic on the out, outlook for equities generally. Um, so equities generally, I'm optimistic on. And within the South African equity asset class, those mid and small cap companies, I'm, I'm, I'm very bullish on still. You've been listening to Pete Fulyun, co-host of the Biz News Power Hour. <laughs> with me is Peter Major, one of South Africa's top Mining analysts. He is with Mergence oh, Capital no, Solutions. Don't say that. You know, you're too modest. Uh, Pete, many people, many of our listeners will remember that you uh, worked for Mark Shuttleworth, advising him on his investments. This is a very difficult uh, climate right now to invest in. If you had a client like that, what would you be telling them about the commodity sector and how to play it? Boy, I'd say you don't want to start playing now because this thing's been going on so many years. And it's reached levels we've never seen before that if you're going on a statistical basis, if you're playing the odds, the odds must be greater that commodities are going to drift flat or go down rather than go up. That's my view. might take me a while to prove that mathematically. But when I see commodity prices, two standard deviations out of their mean, when I see some commodity prices multiples of the high they've ever been before, I got to believe the statistics are hugely in favor that it's going to be a lot harder for them to go higher than come lower. So, yeah, at this stage, whether it's Mark Shuttleworth or Clint Eastwood, who's probably 90 years old, whether you've got a long horizon or a short one, I don't think you need to be buying into commodities right now. There's a lot of talk about coal prices now. Why are they so high, do you think? Coal prices. Yes. This is one of the few things I think I forecast correctly is as coal became public enemy number one, um, most self-respecting companies didn't want to have too much to do with it because they want their ESG ratings up and they want their price earnings ratings up. They don't want to be like a cigarette company with, with horrible PE ratios and everybody always trying to attack you. So it meant a lot of people producing coal decided to get out of it. Even worse for the coal producers is people who are financing coal have decided to stop. And so that means it's pretty hard to start a new coal mine if you're going to rely on outside funding. And it means you're going to have to pay big dividends to keep people in, like the cigarette companies. You're going to have to have large distributions of cash because everybody thinks you have a very short um, lifeline, lifeline. Um, expected life um, life expectancy. <laughs> Anyways, the fact is, the world can't just switch off coal-fired power plants because it needs them. It's so addicted to them. Almost like a cigarette smoker, he just can't give up cold turkey. So most of the world can't just get by without electricity, certainly not in the volumes and the price they're used to. So, well... This is a long-term trend. Our current suite of coal-fired power plants need to be fed. And boy, all of a sudden you got a little less production. Well, that, that raises the price of the existing production. 
So, yeah, these, these prices are high because there's not a lot of new coal mines coming online. There's not money to bring new coal mines online. And so I think the prices, they could stay here, not forever, but for a long time because mines are just going to run out of coal and there won't be a new mine to replace it. And yes, the power station here and there will be closed as new electrical generators come online. But it, it's a gradual process. The world's used to using, I don't know, 6 billion tons of coal a year. So it, it can't just reduce that by 10%. Be lucky if it could reduce that by 5% in a year. So I think that the mines are going to run out before the power stations are closed, Jax. And that's going to keep the, the price pretty high. So this is going to go on for quite a while then, what, maybe another decade? Yeah, yeah, I think a decade is not unrealistic. You know, certainly, certainly another five years, with, without a doubt, because coal is just too large a part of the world's current electricity, electricity generation. What I find quite interesting is that uh, these environmentally friendly funds don't really seem to be very popular among investors. And you hear investment advisors saying nobody ever comes to them and says, can you please put my money into an ESG fund? Uh, there's a lot of hype uh, in the media about these. So what do you make of this uh, conflict between investors not really being interested and uh, you know, big fund managers talking the talk? Look, I'm very surprised to hear that investors aren't interested in those funds because from what I see coming out of the United States, it's now written into mandates. It's, it's mandated that fund managers can only invest in those funds or can only invest in funds. They're now adopting those, those ESG requirements for all their individual holdings. So what you're saying is totally contradictory from what I've read and heard. I, I think individual fund managers who, who aren't under pressure to adopt certain stances, they're only going to invest in a fund if they're pretty sure that that fund's going to outperform. And I remember when when we were first trying to establish what are our parameters when I was working for Mark back in the early 90s, and one of the things that he was very adamant about, he didn't want any cigarette, alcohol, gambling companies in his fund. And I remember Alan Gray was making impassioned pleas because some of those shares were the cheapest. Those are real Warren Buffett shares, and they were just trading at such low PEs, had high dividends, and, and were looking to expand in certain places in South Africa. And they just thought, GP, if we can't invest in those, we're going to battle to outperform. And, and they were on good incentive to outperform. But Mark was adamant he, he would take their fund if their fund didn't have that. Otherwise, they must create a fund that didn't have those three elements in it. So I, I think more and more of that is happening and, and it's certainly going to happen with coal mines, but there will still be investors that are very happy to have those. It's, it's paying a big dividend and they're going to get a better return on it. So do you think it's a good idea then a share like Tungela? You know, Jackie, what's your alternative? If you close that, it wouldn't have really hurt Anglo-American. It, it, it would have it would have detracted from it because it was generating money and it was very low valuation in the fund. But I think it would have done a lot more damage to this country than it would have done to Anglos. And by keeping it going, you're giving the people working there time to make an alternative plan. You're giving the company enough revenue and earnings to do a proper closure. 
if you tell somebody I'm stopping your operations today and you're going to do rehabilitation, it's probably not going to get done correctly because all of a sudden it doesn't have the cash flow to do that. But if, if you have a, a milestone and a deadline where that mine can now work towards, it can do it very economically, very correctly. And, and yeah, it doesn't even have to lay people off. The mine can actually keep people there a lot longer and, and they can retire due to age or they get transferred or they move or they change jobs. So I think Engels did the right thing. I, I think they, they, they've hived off that to individual shareholders who can all make their own choices. Do they want to be in that share or not? And they've given that, that division, that coal division, the best life possible and, and, how it's going to continue with that. Is it going to clean up all the mines? Is it going to invest in new ones? Look, our, our coal plants need coal. And there's a clean way of mining that's still dirty, but a lot cleaner than previously. And there's a, a much cleaner way of generating electricity with coal. So maybe these power plants need to be cleaned up. Maybe they need more electrostatic precipitators. But there's there's a lot of ways we can reduce the pollution and keep them going a little longer it's going to benefit this country a lot more than just closing it down, putting people out of work and leaving a mess. Kumba Iron Ore was one of the companies that made an announcement today and it said it expects half-year earnings to rise by about 150%. Do you keep close tabs on Kumba and do you think it's a good investment or is it time to sell now? Boy, Major thinks it's time to sell because he thinks these are Looney Tune iron ore prices. And that's what moves Kumba. You barely go back a year from now, Jackie. I don't think the iron ore price was even $90 a ton. And we thought 90 was incredibly high when their working costs are probably $40 a ton. And the rest of the world's working costs are probably 25, 30 a ton. So here's the second most common metal in the world. And everybody can mine profitably below 50 a ton. And yet the iron ore price has escalated to 210 a ton. So it just doesn't make any sense to me, these insane iron ore prices. There's no shortage of iron ore anywhere in the world. And it, it will take some of the other African mines to um, – it'll take them months, maybe a year to, to start getting their production to the port, getting it to China. But, hey, if you held Kumba, you're the benefit of a super run in this commodity price. And that's really what triggered those results that their, their mining operations have pretty fixed costs, pretty good cost control. And a year ago, they were getting about $90 a ton, and it has just gone up every day from a year ago to where today it's 205 210 a ton. But I don't even know how it can stay here more than another few weeks or a month. And I definitely don't know how it could ever go above this. But so you'd be selling? I'd be selling, yeah, I, I'd say you have such a lucky bonus. You're holding this during an amazing run. I didn't see or hear one person forecasting iron ore was going to go over 150, let alone 200. Are there any other pockets of opportunities like this that people should be getting into now, or are all the opportunities gone in commodities? No, there's always opportunities. The problem is we can't see them till afterwards. Kind of like Greenspan's famous stock market bubble. <laughs> you only know you're in a bubble when it explodes. If, if I look at what's way out of whack, the rhodium price was probably the greatest out of whack. 
because I don't think it's long-term, 100-year average. It had probably hit $10,000 an ounce three times in the history of man. And here this time, it shot past 10000 to 20000 and it touched 30000 Now, there's a commodity trading at three times the highest price it had ever traded at in 100 years. And that rhodium was actually just over 50% of the platinum mine's revenue when it when it was touching 30,000 an ounce. Now, in the last literally weeks, last few weeks, it's come from 30, 29,000, 28,000, 27, and I see today it's fallen below 20,000. So there's a 33% pullback on rhodium, and I think it's going to go down a little more. But the palladium price hasn't gone as crazy as rhodium, but it's still very, very high. So I think there's there's an opportunity to be opposite long palladium, which means you got to short it. That's a pretty risky strategy. No investor would probably do that, but speculators would. But I think this is going to put pressure under these platinum stocks. They're already discounting a much lower palladium price, so that might be built into them. But you notice how much these platinum shares have come down the last few weeks, and it's mainly because of that fall in rhodium. Now, how about the other end of the scale? What commodity has lagged all these three, four, five, six, seven years? It would be uranium. And uranium seems to be moving up after years and years, literally five, six years now of being in the low 20s. Uranium is now trading at 32, 32 and a half dollars a pound. And it could easily go up to $40 a pound. I think its long-term average is probably about 48. So it's been trading way below its average for many years now. And if you're going to close a power plant, coal-fired power plant, a nuclear power plant is the only thing that can step in and take its place. We, we can't bring on more hydroelectric power plants. Solar and wind will never give you the base load that a coal or a uranium plant will. So I think a lot of the world is waking up to the fact uranium might not be the, the ultimate long-term average, but it is a heck of a lot cleaner and safer than coal. And so, yeah, I'm I'm fairly bullish on the uranium price going up. I suppose there's a catch with moving to clean energy, which is nuclear power stations. Well, in my view, in a lot of people's views, nuclear power stations are a lot cleaner and safer than coal power stations. And, and I think the world, people like China going to that in a big way is confirmation. It also believes that. Yeah, even America is closing down coal-fired power stations a lot quicker than it's closing down nuclear plants. And I think China and Japan are doing the same. So I don't think nuclear is long-term. I think there's much better ways to generate electricity, either using thorium or eventually we'll have hydrogen reactors. But we don't have those yet. But we know coal is filthy dirty. We know it's killing thousands of people a year, if not a million or more. In, in various ways, mainly through pollution. So I, I think uranium is, is a much better substitute than coal. Pete, what about gold? Gold's very hard to understand. Where Where is it going? You know, this morning there were gold mining stocks in the top losers. Now they've disappeared. You know, the gold price keeps changing. What do you see happening to gold? Yeah, it's too bad we can't use gold to generate electricity, huh? 
then we'd have an assured gold price, like we kind of have an assured coal price. Gee, Jackie, I don't know. I, I just don't. I, I thought some of this negativity towards Bitcoin was going to help gold, but it doesn't seem to have it. People used to say gold is a great counterinvestment or diversified investment because it's not linked to anything else. And that that is actually correct more often than we want. So, yes, gold doesn't seem to be linked to Bitcoin either way. It doesn't necessarily go up with Bitcoin and it doesn't seem to go up when Bitcoin falls. And it kind of fell with Bitcoin, but it's yeah, it is virtually totally unrelated to everything. So where is it going now? It's 1775. I can't see gold falling much lower unless the other commodity prices continue to come down. That said, you know, what was gold's high? About 2050. And I think that was about a year ago. So it's down, it's down close to 15, 20% from its high. And, and a lot of these other commodities are like copper, you know, copper's probably fallen 15, 20% literally in the last week. But yeah, I don't see gold taking off again. I don't see it going up over 2000. If it does, I don't know why it would stay there, but it definitely has established some kind of floor. It, it, I would say $14,000 an ounce, sorry, $1,400 an ounce. That looks, Looks like quite a, a tough floor for it to fall behind. I think you'd have to have a real meltdown in commodity prices. And that means every commodity before gold gets back down to a 14, 1500 an ounce. And oil just seems too strong up here. I can't see gold falling much further if oil is going to stay at this level, let alone if oil goes up. But we talked about that on this show. Is gold an investment? It is in a Kruger round. Oh, because you you got the benefit that the gold price falls, the rand usually weakens, and over time we've seen gold has averaged over twelve percent a year. I think twelve and a half percent a year. I think that's about its fifty sixty year average, which is pretty good. So gold has pulled back a lot from its rand high, and it's pulled back almost fifteen twenty percent from its dollar high. So yeah, is gold a good investment? It's a fair, it's not a bad investment. You know, something that's giving you 12, 12.5% every year in RAND terms, maybe a few years it underperformed, but then it makes up for it the following few years. So I think gold's, I'd rather be holding gold than most of these other commodities right now. Maybe platinum. Platinum's probably the only other one I'll consider other than gold. Pete, would you ever consider Bitcoin in your portfolio at all? Never, never, not even if I'm dead. <laughs> that, that is too foreign, too inexplicable, and too untrustworthy for me. Yeah, I don't know who invented it. I don't know where it comes from. It's, you know, it, it's a coin for the masses. As long as the masses want it, it seems to go up. And when the masses don't want it, boy, does it fall. And I don't want my future relying on the masses. Pete, it's always a pleasure chatting to you here on the Biz News Power Hour. You've been listening to Pete Major, Mining Analyst with Mergence Capital Solutions. Well, Ryan Notes, it's nice to be able to catch you again after the, the great interview we had. A, sure, it's only a week ago, Ryan, where you said we're definitely into the third wave. I think nobody can doubt that now. Gauteng is creaking. 
Unfortunately, Alec, I wish it was otherwise. I wish I was wrong a week ago. But we're seeing infections, new daily infections, 30% above where they were in the second peak, in the prior peak of the second wave. So um, we haven't seen the likes of these these infection numbers in Gauteng before. Why has it been so much uh, more virulent than in both the first and second waves? Well, our view about Gauteng is that, in fact, it was one of the least affected provinces. On our estimates, about 45% of Gauteng had been previously infected with COVID-19, whereas if you compare it to the Eastern Cape, for example, our estimates were 90% plus had a previous COVID-19 infection. That means that underlying immunity in Gauteng is, is, is really absent. Uh, you know, there, there are no antibodies through previously infected people. And so we think that predisposes Gauteng potentially to a very bad wave. Uh, we said this before the wave began, and unfortunately now it's proving to be correct. I think the scary part, Alec, is that hospitals are quite full already. And the hospital admissions tend to follow about two weeks after the infections. And with the infection numbers we've seen the last few days, we're very worried about what happens in the hospitals two weeks hence. So so two more weeks into the future uh, before things might start turning down. Well, yesterday, if I remember correctly, there were 13,575 new infections reported in the country, of which... 68%, 68%, a very high proportion, were in Gauteng. Um, and so just yesterday's infection numbers, the proportion of people from yesterday that will land up in hospital is about two weeks from now. Ryan, just before we go more deeply into the Gauteng figures, the Eastern Cape presumably then is not going to be looking at a third wave. Are there other provinces that will also escape this? I've learned one lesson, Alec, that it's extremely dangerous to make predictions about this disease, which is unpredictable and which surprises us around every corner. So how I would put it is to say that if the Eastern Cape does experience a surge, we think it will be much lower than wave two and that it will be a more manageable surge. Um, again, you know, we are we do not have a crystal ball and it's it's not proven possible to predict how this disease unfolds. The Northern Cape was interesting. It went through a terrible third wave, but it's on the way down the other side now, reducing daily infections. uh, And that's quite reassuring. Northwest seems to have also potentially reached the peak. um, And, you know, and that's looking good. Limpopo has had a terrible third wave and is still on the way up. KZN had a very high infection level in our view from previous waves. Uh, where we put the Eastern Cape over 90% and Gauteng below 40, 50%, we had KZN round about the 80% mark. So we think also potentially protected against a severe surge, uh, but it is a large population um, and relatively densely populated, so we'll have to wait and see. And in the Free State and the Western Cape? Uh, Free State seems also to have peaked in this wave, we're hoping. We're hoping that it's on the way down. Western Cape escalations have been quite high over the last few days. Uh, we, we positioned their previous infections at about the 60% mark. What that means for us is that it's quite difficult to predict because it's on the edge of that so-called herd immunity threshold. Um, and so we think there is some risk in the Western Cape. And, we, you know, all over the country people should be very cautious, but particularly we think uh, Western Cape and Gauteng at the moment, yes. 
Ryan, from Discovery's point of view, you've got millions of members. Uh, some of them are going to get very sick uh, from people in Gauteng. Would you advise them to get in a car and drive to perhaps Durban or even uh, the Eastern Cape to get into a hospital there if it's going to be so difficult to be admitted here? No, in fact, I would advise them to do the opposite, Alec. I mean, interprovincial tr- uh, mobility is a huge problem because we do end up just seeding the infection all the way down the, 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 the uh, path that we take, um, the route that we take to wherever our destination is and there too. The strong advice, and I couldn't be more firm around this, is to stay home. Uh, it's, you know, to lock yourself up in your home, pretend that it was that same period of level five restrictions again, uh, try and do all your shopping online, uh, and really confine yourself to your home until this settles for at least a couple of weeks. Uh, I think given the economic pressures in the country, the government may not be able to enforce a level five lockdown. They may choose to, but I think it's a very difficult decision with that tension with the economy. Um, and so we should, from a behavioral point of view, try and give effect to it nonetheless. I've noticed with a couple of friends who've really got themselves into, well, not got themselves, they're in, in difficult situations, that they had sniffles and then they didn't think it was serious. Is that one of the, the absolute signals? that it- Common feature, yeah, absolutely. Nasal congestion, a scratchy and itchy throat, sore throat, low-grade headache, a feeling of malaise or fatigue, just a, a little bit of tiredness that's quite unusual for you at an unusual time of day. These are the early onset features. Uh, I wish they were more severe, those early onset features, because people could then recognize they're ill and isolate immediately. But as you allude, many people seem to carry on, ignore it, think it's a bit of hay fever or a common cold, uh, and it turns out not to be. Yeah, certainly, and especially at this time of the year as well. It's very easy for for them to to suggest that. But we've got that message loud and clear. What about people who are COVID-19 positive and they are at home and don't want to clog up the hospital system? What can they do to ensure that they don't become, uh, they don't need to go into the ICUs? Well, the good news is that the vast majority of people have a completely asymptomatic or very mild infection. Uh, and that is extremely reassuring uh, and, and good news. This is largely uh, a disease, particularly in the young and the healthy, uh, which doesn't manifest in, in severe symptoms at all. Uh, unfortunately, in the elderly and those living with chronic illness, uh, there is indeed a lot of risk. We see of all the positive infections that we've seen at Discovery Health, To date, we've seen about 250,000 of our members testing positive. We see a 20% admission rate to hospital. And it's quite predictable who gets admitted. It's unfortunately the elderly and those living with chronic illness, particularly more than one chronic illness. Your question is what they do if they're at home and they're sick. Consult your family practitioner as a starting point. This is a disease that is very well managed at the moment by the general practitioners. They are the primary givers of care here, and they have come up with what the evidence is showing, quite reliable cocktails, which they're using to treat COVID-19 at home. Um, So I would start by engaging with your family practitioner. We suggest you do it on a virtual consultation across our digital platform available to our members through our website. 
Uh, you can talk to a GP on a virtual consultation by telemedicine. Uh, that means you can stay home and stay isolated and your GP can be protected. Um, and then your GP will discern whether a further examination and assessment in person or blood tests and the like is needed. Uh, and then there are various remedies that can be treated at home, obviously oral medication. For those who are at risk of respiratory problems, we are sending remote monitoring devices to their homes. I think we, we checked last week, we'd sent out about 27,000 of these now to monitor people's respiratory patterns and their pulse oximetry, their saturation in their homes. And for some people that are getting more ill, we are delivering oxygen at home and doing remote care at home under the supervision of these doctors. Uh, so, so the good advice is start with your family practitioner without a doubt. But that 20% of the 250,000 who members who are infected having to go to hospital sounds very high. It's actually in line with all the international statistics. Um, and you must remember that different populations have different average ages. On average, we have quite a young average age. So in, in societies, communities like the United Kingdom, where the average age is materially higher, they actually have higher admission rates than that 20%. But we've had 46,454, uh, you know, just approaching 50,000 members admitted to hospital for COVID-19 since the start of the, the South African epidemic. Have the vaccines made any difference yet? Yes, uh, Alec, good news that the vaccines are making a, a, a difference already. It's very early and so I must caveat whatever data I provide you by saying that this is very early data. The mass vaccination campaign of the over 60-year-olds began on the 17th of May, and we approach the six-week horizon of that this coming Monday, next week. Um, and so, so far, we've only got members who've received the first dose of the vaccine. The second dose is due 42 days or six weeks later. And so the second dose campaign will start nationally next week. But we do have 110,000 Discovery Health members who have had that first dose. And for those that were vaccinated more than 21 days ago, so 21 days and more, we are seeing quite positive indicators on all levels. Firstly, the incidence of new infections that they experience is 34% lower than the unvaccinated similar age group. 34% lower. The rate of admissions to hospital for those who are diagnosed COVID-19 positive is 48% lower. Wow. That's so huge. It's, it's material. The it's, and, and, mm. and, the, and these are statistically significant figures because they're based on 110,000 vaccinated members. Uh, and importantly, to date, uh, we haven't had a single death in this vaccinated group relative to, unfortunately and tragically, quite a large number of deaths in the similarly aged population in the unvaccinated cohort. So whichever level you're measuring it at the moment, infections, hospital admissions, deaths, so, uh, you know, infectivity, morbidity and mortality, we're seeing a favourable early outcome of vaccination. The whole Gauteng wave, uh, which, as we started off this conversation, seems to be just engulfing the province, are you still uh, of the opinion that it's going to be another couple of weeks at least before it peaks? I don't know when it peaks. And, uh, you know, we've got various projections. When I spoke to you last, we predicted a peak towards the first week or so of July. 
Uh, that's fortunately now only 10 days away, 10 days to two weeks away. And I'm very much hoping we're right. I'm very much hoping that by then it has peaked. Unfortunately, the daily escalations have been enormous. And, uh, you know, the healthcare system will be overrun if we sustain these continued daily escalations. My only plea is that people amend their behavior uh, and take heed and stay home. And really, really be serious about it now because it's, it is, it's never been this bad in the province anyway. Yeah, and you know, Alex, unfortunately, all these months later, there still are people out there who, you know, call this the flu and and deny the disease. But more and more of us are having close friends and family sadly impacted, landing up incredibly ill. And, um, you know, I think this is proving to all of us how dangerous this disease is. Ryan, just to close off with, if you are COVID positive, uh, and you've gone for your test, and it tells you you say day four, just for argument's sake. How long is it likely that you're going to be sick for? Are there any are there any cycles that this virus works in? Uh, most of the people imp- have symptom relief after seven to ten days, uh, the majority, and the majority of people who require a hospital admission have that hospital admission between nine and fourteen days. Um, and so that's what we're seeing in our data as the natural cycle of the disease. That's at population level. Uh, you know, we had an old saying in medicine, patients don't read textbooks. And so there are obviously exceptions and outliers. And so not everybody will respond that way. But certainly for the majority of the population, that's what we're seeing. So the critical time for anyone who is positive is from day 9 to 14. It's either going to be an improvement in your uh, conditions or uh, to this degree that you might have to go to hospital. Yes, absolutely. Um, and and take good advice and get good care from a family practitioner to make sure you make prudent decisions. With me is Andrew Golding, one of South Africa's most prominent uh, real estate experts. Andrew, what do your statistics tell you about South Africa's residential property market? So, Jackie, I think uh, t- to everyone's surprise, uh, after lockdown, uh, the residential market um, has been in an extremely good space, um, more or less for the last um, 12 to 14 months, with increased volumes of trade, um, increased over the pre-COVID period. And what we're starting to see in our most recent statistics is some real house price growth relative to inflation for the first time since 2016. So um, the indicators, I think, uh, are there in terms of, I think, surprising results, uh, given what everyone was predicting around um, the, the, the economy and the state of the economy and its effect on the housing market. And I think there have been a number of um, structural and seemingly permanent uh, or certainly semi-permanent trends that have catalyzed that, uh, including and probably the most significant one being the low interest rates. So the 50-year low interest rates um, have no doubt um, catalyzed the market and in particular, I think, have uh, persuaded uh, first-time home buyers who were previously renters to get into the housing market, and that has certainly pushed uh, the entire market up from a volume perspective. There's a lot of talk that rentals in Gauteng are really depressed now, perhaps more than they have been for years. What do your agents tell you about the market in Gauteng? Yeah, so so I think the rental market generally has been under pressure. Uh, I think that's a combination of the fact that, as I alluded to earlier, 
uh, first-time home buyers and a number of people who would ordinarily rent are taking a view to buy. Uh, and also the fact that um, uh, tenants uh, have the upper hand with landlords at the moment and uh, in the COVID environment were certainly negotiating uh, rental reductions, but even in the post-lockdown environment have been um, keenly aware that, um, generally speaking, a landlord is better off renegotiating with an existing tenant than trying to find a new one. And so as a consequence of that, uh, rentals have been under pressure from a landlord point of view. Do you think that this is the bottom of the cycle and now is a, actually a very good time to start investing in property? Is this looking a bit to you like the market looked, say, 15 years ago before people started making good money in residential property? I, I think it's so difficult to say because we're in you know, such unprecedented times in terms of COVID and its effects. Um, I think we just really don't know how this is going to play itself out. I think that we are generally having to take some very short-term views and, and our best guess in terms of the balance of this year is that we're going to continue to find ourselves in a low interest rate environment, which is going to be good for the continuation of the existing market conditions. There's really nothing that we can see on the horizon which is going to significantly alter the current shape uh, of the market. The, the, the only one that perhaps is materializing is that uh, whereas in the last 12 months it certainly has been a buyer's market, what we're starting to see now is that sellers are seeing house price growth in, in many parts of the country and it's being, being more challenging to close the gap between buyers and sellers and that may be a tipping point in the market. But in terms of the overall sort of general feeling around things, we, we see the current conditions in the market um, which are favorable in terms of numbers of, of sales that are happening uh, continuing for the balance of this year. Beyond that, I think it's anyone's guess. There's been a lot of concern about land expropriation without compensation. This week, former President Tabu Mbeki came out with a report actually slamming this idea that this should be pushed ahead. What do you make of the land expropriation debate? Do you think that this is a lot of hot air that will go away, or do you see this as a threat to the property market? Yeah, I, I certainly hope it's a lot of hot, hot air and a lot of rhetoric um, uh, at the moment, ma mainly political rhetoric. Uh, I certainly hope that sense will prevail. Um, I think that the consequences for the country in, in many different ways, um, if this starts affecting um, residential property and the ability to influence the ownership of residential property in uh, against the constitutional um, rights that are currently enshrined. If those change, I think that that is a significant uh, negative game changer potentially. And I really hope that that sense will prevail and that um, seemingly the existing position of the government, which is a um, sensible one, which keeps the property rights of individuals enshrined as per the constitution will be maintained. Many South Africans know the Golding, Pam Golding Group for, you know, the presence in South Africa, but you also have um, business operations outside South Africa and you help South Africans buy property offshore and also help them get passports elsewhere. What is the demand for offshore property and then also for getting passports elsewhere? Are you seeing a shift in the immigration trend? Yeah, so, so I think that um, since the beginning of COVID, we've seen a, a steady stream, which was in fact pretty much there before COVID-2, of South Africans looking to diversify their property portfolios uh, in many different international jurisdictions. Uh, one of the components of that was the sort of alternative residency and citizenship schemes that are available around uh, many different jurisdictions uh, in the world. 
And that appetite is still definitely there. There's no question about that. Uh, Portugal is probably the one destination where we have had most interest from South Africans, particularly with uh, the Golden Visa program. But there's also international um, property investment diversification happening in Portugal and in many other um, areas around the world. And I think it is a, a, a trend that is well entrenched around um, South Africans and, in fact, Africans looking to diversify their property investment uh, initiatives in a number of different uh, currency jurisdictions and geographical jurisdictions. And we see that continuing. Uh, I think that that's a, a trend that's well entrenched. And finally, we hear that a lot of South Africans who live elsewhere like to have uh, properties in luxury estates. What are you seeing in that sector of the market and which estates are the ones that people should be investing in and perhaps staying away from? Yeah, so, so I think, the, the again, a, a seemingly structural COVID trend has been the extent to which people have uh, made decisions on the ability to be able to work and live in uh, their chosen destination, uh, wherever that may be. So we've seen the emergence of of Zoom towns popping up, uh, people moving permanently to seaside homes and holiday homes, people buying what were formerly holiday homes and now being uh, their primary homes and being able to work from those destinations. We're seeing international purchases uh, buy in South Africa, recognizing that they can work from there and now conduct their business from there. So I think that's an important trend. And then there's no doubt that um, in line with that, in terms of estates, We've seen a significant uptick in the number of people who are choosing to live in estates as a consequence of the COVID environment, the consequence of being in a community which is, first of all, safe, uh, which is um, provides them with all of their needs in terms of live, work and play, uh, including education in some cases. And so generally speaking, the, the, the well-known and larger estates um, in, in almost every metro in the country um, have done extremely well and have benefited from uh, individuals moving from freehold and sectional title individual properties into estated estate properties. And that's all we've got time for here on the Biz News Power Hour. From me, Jackie Cameron, and the rest of the Biz News team, thanks for joining us. Your regular host, Alec Hogg, will be back with you at the usual time on Monday. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.